make it way harder for them to follow But I take it hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff, rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks, you played enough I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up Fight, H-U-P-L-P, Hillsboro, North Carolina, center of the known world. ...and lock your refrigerator, especially if it's full of vegan food, because this is the Cage Side Concussion Cast, your source for the fighting arts in the Carolinas and beyond. I am Jeff Shaw, and we're coming to you live on 104.7 FM, local to Hillsboro, streaming live everywhere else in the known universe at whupfm.org. however you are hearing us. Thank you for listening to our forays into face-punching, pajama wrestling, and oh so much more. Uh, so today... I'm thinking about General Cornwallis. Now, why, you might ask, are you thinking about British general during the Revolutionary War General Cornwallis, Jeff? You might ask that. Is it because you're a giant nerd? Well, the answer is yes, and by the way, thanks for asking. So the real reason is this. After Cornwallis surrendered to the American colonists at Yorktown to end the Revolutionary War, he played, or he ordered the band to play, The World Turned Upside Down. This tells us a couple of things. First, it tells us how pretentious the British Imperial Army was. Now, just imagine that you're a colonial force, a colonial soldier, and the side-eye that you throw at your friends after the Redcoats play that song after you, after you beat them. But second, the fact that I'm thinking of the British general during the Revolutionary War playing the world turned upside down tells you exactly how big a shock to the system that Holly Holm threw into the MMA world by knocking out heavily favored and previously unbeaten Ronda Rousey last night. Now, we like to keep it really local here on the Concussion Cast, and we're going to do that. But we can't ignore this, and you'll get my take on the Holm-Rousey fight in a minute. But without getting too far ahead of myself, let me, just, let me just tease you with this. I think in 20 years, we might just look back on this moment as a watershed in continuing the journey of women's mixed martial arts to the mainstream. And maybe not for the reasons that you think. So we'll, we'll have more on that later. But uh, just like the world of women's MMA, and just like General Cornwallis's world a couple hundred years ago, our show for the day has also been turned a little bit upside down in the last 24 hours. For one thing, as you may notice, I haven't introduced Trevor yet, and that's because I'm flying solo today. Absent from the show today is the master of cowboy karate, the one, the only, my man, my main man, my can of spam, Trevor Hayes. Trevor's at an MMA ref certification clinic, and hopefully, teaser alert, we'll get a cool interview out of that as well. I always miss having Trevor around, but I especially miss my kickboxing T-Rex buddy when we're discussing things like Holmes' head kick knockout of the mighty Ronda. But we'll have him back next week. And like my man Celine Dion says, actually, my girl Celine Dion, although gender is a social construct, my heart will go on, even without Trevor. After all, even Flavor Flav got a few solo tracks on Public Enemy Records, and I'd like to think of this show as my cold lampin' with Flavor from It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. A few hip-hop fans out there. Uh, anyway, uh, enough monologue. Uh, the point is, without Trevor, we had a change in interview subject today. We were going to talk to Chris Clodfelter, the owner and head instructor at Eight Points Muay Thai, but due to a couple of schedule conflicts, uh, we're going to have Chris on at a later date. And one main goal for the program Trevor and I share is we want to document how our area, the North Carolina, the Carolinas, and the Southeast generally, we want to document how that area became a hotbed of martial arts over the years. And so we both love hearing from veterans of the scene, and Chris Clodfelter is one of those guys, but Andrew Smith is another. And if you don't know Andrew, I think you're really going to enjoy the interview today. Uh, if you do know Andrew, you might, you might also enjoy it. Uh, I did a long interview with Andrew the other day after he taught a seminar at the Pendergrass Academy. And we're going to share the best parts of that over the next hour. Uh, we're going to do three segments with Andrew, wherein we will learn the biggest local changes he's noticed in the last 20 years that he's been on the scene. 
We're going to talk about U.S. grappling, uh, the tournaments that, uh, of which he is a co-owner uh, of the tournament organization. We're going to talk about their pioneering no-time-limit submission-only tournaments as well as some other things. And we'll also learn about Andy on how to break people's feet during Brazilian jiu-jitsu matches, including what he thinks are the biggest mistakes people make in training Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, but before we get to the main interview, uh, we're going to get to the news. Uh, on the Concussion Cast, we like to tell the untold stories of martial arts in North Carolina and beyond. All the people out there who are training and competing and showing up every day trying to improve their lives and the lives of their loved ones. And a lot of that creates a lot of local news that we want to fill in. So we're going we're gonna to have a few local news items before we get into the Andrew interview. If we missed anything, as we often do, we invite you to tell us. Uh, the Concussion Cast is on Twitter and Instagram at CagesideWHUP, CagesideWhoop. You can also shout us out on the internet using that hashtag, CagesideWhoop. You can get at us via email, CagesideWHUP at gmail.com, and on Facebook at Cageside Radio. If you ever uh, want to learn any of this information, that's all on our show page at WhoopFM.com, or sorry, WhoopFM.org as well. But Without any further ado, we're going to get into the news. And before we do so, uh, I'm just going to play a bumper that reminds me of my dear absent friend. This is Trevor Hayes, and you are listening to Cage Side Concussion Cast on 7 What FM from Hillsboro, North Carolina. So thanks for that, Trevor. Um, so let's get to the news. Uh, without Trevor, it's just going to be me today. So we'll start with the the most uh, the shortest and most impactful news items before we get into breaking down uh, the uh, the whole Rousey fight. So first of all, uh, a local fighter, Travis Holloman, who we'd love to get in the studio at some point, had his pro MMA debut last night at the U.S. Freedom Fighting Championships, and he won via knockout via high elbow. Now, aside from having the best hair in local martial arts, according to voters on our con- on Concussion Cast Facebook page, Travis is also an excellent fighter, has had a really successful amateur career, has terrific grappling as well as striking, and it was really nice to see him get his first win. I know a lot of folks were interested in seeing the result of that fight, and so uh, we're going to post... Uh, whatever video we can come by on our Facebook page. So congratulations to Travis for that. Also, I want to shout out a, an, an upcoming event that I would encourage everybody who likes grappling to attend. Mentioned a couple days ago, or a couple of shows ago, Fredson Paishao, who is one of the greatest of all time, uh, you know, terrific, terrific uh, grappler and instructor, who was one of the very few, only of two guys that I know of, to skip his brown belt, go straight from purple belt to black belt, is going to give a seminar December 5th at... Um, in Jacksonville, North Carolina, at the Killer Bee Training Center. Um, we've posted information about that on our Facebook page as well. Um, you can sh- search for that event if you want, or hit us up on any of the aforementioned Cage Side Concussion Cast internet channels, and we'll give you the information. I believe that's from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., and it's a really reasonable price. I've already pre-registered. So it's at the Killer Bee Training Center, Fredson Paishao, December 5th. He's known as the master of the wrist lock, but believe me, this guy's good at everything. And uh, so if you, if you enjoy jiu-jitsu and you want to learn some stuff, that'd be a great thing for you, for you to get out to. So those are two quick news items. We have a couple more news items that I want to get a little more in depth on. And one of those is yesterday's U.S. Grappling Tournament. U.S. Grappling comes down uh, throughout the Southeast, really across the country now, to deliver some of the best tournaments. And, you know, I've competed at a lot of different organizations, uh, I've, I've com- and I've refed and worked tables at several different organizations as well. And U.S. Grappling puts on some of the best tournaments that I've ever been a part of. Really, really happy to be associated with them. And so I was refing at the U.S. Grappling Greensboro Tournament yesterday. It was a really terrific tournament that was really well attended, and I want to 
sort of high up some of the most significant things that I saw happen. Now, I was refing all day, so I wasn't able to see everything. So if I missed something, feel free to shout us out on Twitter at Cageside Whoop and shout out your friends. Uh, we'll put up some, some of the stuff that we missed as well. So first of all, if you want to see the results, the results are on the U.S. Grappling Facebook page as well as usgrappling.com. And we also posted a link on our Facebook page, Cageside Radio. Um, but I want, to, I want to shout out some of the most outstanding individual performances that I noticed. Uh, so first of all, a bunch of really great local grapplers uh, won double gold. Uh, for those of you that don't do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, uh, usually what double gold signifies is you win first place, a gold medal, not just in your division, your weight class, but also in absolute. You can also use double gold to signify like maybe if you just enter your weight class and you win both the gi category and the no gi category. So uh, a couple, couple, couple of guys that I noticed winning double gold, Josh Williams, who's a tremendous grappler, a, a real beast, also has, you know, along with Travis, some of the best hair in local martial arts, he took double gold in, in, uh, in his events. Uh, Jake Whitfield, who's one of my, you know, and, and you know, Jake, if you don't know Jake, and we'll reference Jake a little bit later in the show as well, he's the head instructor at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu Goldsboro, North Carolina, and he's one of the, the three guys that I've learned the most uh, about Jiu-Jitsu from. So it's really it's really great to see him competing uh, with regularity. Again, he's a very successful competitor. People know him mostly for his MMA career, uh, but, you know, he has outstanding, outstanding Jiu-Jitsu. And uh, so Jake... In, in a really entertaining black belt field, um, took double gold and had some terrific matches with really with really good black belt competitors. I really enjoyed watching his match uh, with Daniel Frank, a really who Daniel who also took uh, two silver medals and a very impressive performance. Also beat a dude that was like sixty pounds heavier than he was, or, or maybe more. I don't know. I don't want to guess weight, but but um, they had really good entertaining matches that were very technical, super good to watch. Um, and those were you know at, at the, so at the black belt level, it was really neat to see guys like that. Um, competing. And, you know, Cody Malte, who was also in that black belt division, won his weight class both gi and no gi, and he got second, he had a silver and a bronze in salute divisions, gi and no gi as well. So a really great performance from Cody. And uh, I, you know, so it was really it was really cool to see that many black belts on, on the mat competing both gi and no gi. It was really nice to see some of, the, some of those performances. And for those of us that are sort of jiu-jitsu nerds, watching people do what they do best, watching, you know, watching Dan Frank uh, work the worm guard, uh, watching Jake back pass, watching Cody uh, take guillotines and arms uh, was, was really entertaining to watch. I didn't notice Cody getting any wrist locks. Apologize if I missed that. He probably got at least one. Another terrific performance, and this guy is, is somebody that, that I had the pleasure to work with when I was working at, working at a table as well. So, you know, those of you that, that follow local jiu-jitsu uh, know DeAndre Corbet, who's a really excellent purple belt. And uh, DeAndre won his match at Toro Cup, a very entertaining match against Frankie Mercado that we posted to the Facebook page. And, you know, D is one of those guys that is going to compete all the time. We've talked about getting him back on the Toro Cup. He seems amenable to that. Uh, D won uh, double gold as well, you know, took his weight class and took uh, absolute against a real, another excellent purple belt competitor, Anthony Elbert, who is an, another awesome guy. So, you know, really great technical performances from all of those people. So, you know, and I apologize if I missed if I miss folks, you know, obviously there were outstanding performances that, that went on that I heard, I heard Trey Pace, uh, Brown Belt, who uh, has been has been killing cats lately and, and did a great uh, job at Toro Cup as well. I heard he had some great matches as well. I just didn't happen to see them. So before we move on, I want to talk a couple more things about the U.S. Grappling Tournament. And I had a, had a really great time, as I always do. First of all, like I want to shout out uh, the women from my team, Triangle Jiu-Jitsu Durham. Um, so Jesse Lancaster, Anya Painter-Chapman, uh, both got, they won their weight class, closed out both divisions, gi and no gi, which was really awesome to watch. Both of those women work so hard, and it's really exciting to see their hard work pay off. Amber Agee and Shayla, too, did the same thing. 
in, you know, in the gi at least where they club. And it was really, it was really fun to watch like a, some really stacked women's divisions that uh, had really exciting and entertaining, fast paced back and forth matches. But I wanted to shout out those four women in particular, simply because we don't have the team points results yet. I mentioned before, and let me clarify again, I mentioned before that all of the U.S. grappling results are posted on their website, usgrappling.com right now. You can also see a link directly to those results on the Cage Side Radio Facebook page that we, that we maintain. So check that link. So we have all the individual results. Uh, the team points are going to come out on Wednesday. And I wanted to get those four women from Triangle Jiu-Jitsu Durham because if those team points go like I hope they will and that, that my school, Triangle Jiu-Jitsu Durham, does very well, I think that they will be a major reason why. And so props to them, props to all their hard work. It's always nice to see good people working hard uh, get the result that they want. So a couple other things about U.S. grappling, uh, the Greensboro tournament specifically. You can see some of these matches on our Periscope page, Cage Side Whoop. I took a few Periscope videos of some of the matches that I was noticing when I wasn't refing. So if you want to look at some of those, you can check that out there. Also, if you want to see something really gross, and who doesn't, I want to shout out my man Eric Shelton for dislocating a kneecap. His patella, yeah, came and his, his patella came and went. Let's just say that. And Eric is a boss because not only did he dislocate a kneecap, which, which I happen to know is very painful, uh, but he got carted off and within an hour had posted his x-ray with the commentary, well, you mean the patella is not to, supposed to go there? And it's just kind of a, a crazy thing that, that I appreciate for several reasons. First of all, the toughness. Second of all, the sense of humor. Third of all, because it's the exact crazy thing that I would do. And so I thought I had won the week's x-rays by posting uh, one of my broken wrist, but Eric's x-ray is way, way, way more impressive than mine. And so if people are interested, we can post those dueling x-rays, but spoiler alert, Eric wins. So that was U.S. Grappling Greensboro. Um, again, uh, it was a terrific tournament. And as a preview of the Andrew Smith interview, one of the distinctions Andrew makes in the interview uh, that I think is a significant one is that there are some tournaments that charge admission fees because they view jiu-jitsu as sort of a form of entertainment. And I love watching jiu-jitsu. I think it's super entertaining. I buy all the live streams. I subscribe to Flow Grappling. Um, you know, I, I watch all the streams of the IBJJF tournaments. You know, I, I'm, I'm a bit a bit obsessive in that way. And, and I love it. I really enjoy watching. But Andrew makes a distinction in the interview that I think is significant, which is some tournaments view jiu-jitsu as a spectator sport, but U.S. grappling is jiu-jitsu for competitors. And it's really dedicated. And like we, we, get, we get told this before, you know, in the ref meetings and the table worker meetings, that um, the key thing is making sure competitors have a good experience. And I think you see the difference. That's one of the reasons U.S. grappling, unlike other organizations, doesn't charge uh, competitors to come or it doesn't charge spectators to come watch their friends compete because if you train hard you know you train 20 hours a week or however much you can get in there and you're excited and you want to go and you want to test yourself or you just want to have fun and grapple you know and your friends and family should be able to watch you do that and and that's one of the things that i like about u.s grappling and you'll listen to andrew talk about that too you know he's one of the co-owners of u.s grappling so moving on to end our news segment i, I previewed this at the start of the show the big seismic shift in martial arts happened last night that we just can't ignore, which is the heavily favored Ronda Rousey was knocked out by Holly Holm with a really sick head kick. And it, there was no doubt about it, very emphatic knockout and a real surprise. And so I want to say, say three things about this. And the first is if you've ever wanted to see a vegan eat some crow or, or listen to a vegan eat some crow, you're about to because I, I'm a huge Ronda fan and I'm a bit heartbroken about it. But I also have to admit I was really wrong about this. And I want to shout out Stephen Thigpen, uh, Matt Jones, and, and Jake from Triangle Jiu-Jitsu Goldsboro, all of whom said, don't be surprised if, and I was like, nah, nah. 
But I was wrong. You know, it happens at least three times a day. And that was my one of my three yesterday. Um, I really thought that Ronda's grappling would would be able to enable her to close the disc against Holmes striking, get in, get a takedown and finish. And Holmes was able to keep her at distance with really excellent striking and was able to finish. And I was wrong. You guys were right. And, you know, got to suck it up. So unfortunately, unfortunately for me, unfortunately for Rhonda, um, that happened. But anyone who knows me off offline knows that I am persistently, engagingly, and I would say annoyingly positive about everything. You know, I'm the guy that always wants to see the bright side of things. And so I will, I'm going to give you a couple elements of the bright side uh, for, for the last, my last two uh, observations about the Rousey home fight. Okay, and the first of those is this is the one thing I was right about. I was wrong about how the fight would go, completely wrong. Um, but I was right in, in the, I, one of the things I said was no, no MMA fight should ever have anyone be more than a six and a half to one underdog or so. Because a lot of my friends that do sports gambling, and gambling is illegal, sir, and I never slice, as Judge Smales once said. Uh, and I would never do that. But if I were, if I were to do that, I would never make anyone more than a six and a half to one underdog. And you could get Holly Holm at 15 to one. On, on various sports books, and that's insane. And that's not just insane because of the result, which we know. It's insane because stuff happens in MMA fights that does not necessarily happen in other sports. Yes, there are upsets in MMA, like, you know, everyone thinks of George St. Pierre versus Matt Serra. Matt Serra, who is the man, uh, not just for beating George St. Pierre, for, but for many other reasons. But, you know, obviously there are upsets, and, and so, and so that's, not, that's not why. But unlike an upset where, let's say, the New England Patriots lose to a cellar-dwelling NFL team, in MMA, it's a one-on-one sport that has flash knockouts, that has freak submissions. And in individual sports, those things are much more high-variance, much more high-variance events are more likely to happen. You get Matt Serra hitting GSP just right. You get Ronda turning right into a head kick and and getting knocked unconscious. And, And so those things happen. But additionally, it's not just the upsets and it's not just the freak occurrences. It's things like injuries and things like um, disqualifications occur. To, um, to, to, to speak to that point, just think about two John Jones fights. John Jones, who may be, you know, is certainly in the discussion for most dominant MMA fighter of his generation. And think about the Matt Hamill fight. Now, if you think of John Jones and what he's accomplished in MMA versus Matt, I mean, it's not, it's not even comparable. And yet because of one elbow in an arcane rule about 12 to 6 elbows, which shouldn't even be a rule, we're not going to get off on that, but because one of John Jones's elbows that he threw while pounding Matt Hamill into oblivion was ruled an illegal 12 to 6 elbow, John Jones lost by disqualification to a guy he never should have lost to. Or if you look at the John Jones-Chael Sonnen fight. Now Chael Sonnen, even, even the most Chael Sonnen partisan people will admit, Chael is nothing compared to John Jones. Chael had no chance. Or should have had no chance. And, you know, it, it ended up John Jones finished him in the first round. But if you remember that fight, Jones stepped wrong during that fight and broke his big toe in a grisly fashion that, that only revealed after the fight was over because adrenaline was pumping and he didn't notice. But if Jones had not finished Chael in that first round and they go to the, they go to the stools, there's a good chance the doctor stops that fight just because John Jones stepped wrong. And that's the most dominant guy. We're talking about the most dominant guy maybe in modern history that could have easily lost a couple of times just because things like that happen in MMA. And so Ronda, yeah, you know, Ronda got, Ronda lost. And yeah, props to home. But I mean, this I think is a reason why you should never make somebody 
that big a favorite or that big an underdog in mixed martial arts. Just wild, random things happen. And that leads into the last point that I'd like to make, which is this might be, and I think we will in 20 years remember this, as the best thing that could have happened to women's MMA for a couple of reasons. So the division is wide open now. Like, obviously, the rematch is going to happen probably, and people are going to be excited for that. But I think of some of the other women that I would love to see fight Holly Holm that I think have a really good chance to beat Holly Holm. I think of Misha Tate, obviously. I think of Sarah McMahon, who's wrestling, I think could really give Holm problems. I think Liz Carmouche would make a great matchup for her if Liz strings together a couple of wins. And I want to give a shout out to Lauren Murphy, who I think, you know, is not quite at the point of a title shot yet, but I think should get more run in the UFC than she's had a chance to thus far. Has had a couple of bad luck, uh, a couple of hard luck decisions. And I mean, that's just to name a few. And so here's the thing. Americans love a dominant champion like Ronda, but we also love an underdog story. And I think the arc of this story could be what the Chicago Bulls of the 90s did for the NBA, where you had an utterly dominant champion. Nobody thought they could lose. And then Michael Jordan left, and now suddenly it's wide open and people are excited because people whose teams didn't have a chance before, suddenly they do. And to use another sports analogy, the NFL's popularity shows that people can love parody as well. So here's the thing. I think MMA, like any sport, fans love it for the story, right? There's a narrative arc. And so it may be, you know, we know Ronda has become so popular over the last year. And I think it may be that Ronda becoming this charismatic and polarizing face of women's MMA, people loving her, people hating her, people seeing her everywhere, becoming this, this face of women's MMA, this unstoppable force, this dom- dominant creature, and then losing, which opens up a bunch of new exciting fights, could be the best possible thing for broadening the sport's popularity. And I might be wrong about that. I mean, I was wrong about who was going to win the fight. But if I'm right, I think in 20 years, we might look back on this and say, you know, Ronda Rousey lost. And that was the best thing that could have happened to women's MMA. You are listening to the K-Side Concussion Cast. I am listening to the K-Side Concussion Cast. So we're going to go, so now, so that's the news, and let us know what you thought of that on Twitter, or send us an email, and uh, let us know if we missed any news. But we're going to go to the first segment with Andrew Smith now. So if you don't know Andrew, uh, aka Goat Fury, Andrew is a second-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu, he's a judo black belt, and he's a co-owner of both U.S. Grappling, which we mentioned before, and Revolution BJJ in Richmond, Virginia. It, and you should train there if you're in town. Um, he's a thoughtful and unique guy, and I enjoyed the interview a lot. I hope you do as well. So for the next few minutes, for the first segment, you're going to hear Andrew explain his background in various martial arts and give an interesting take about what life lessons that he learned from judo and jiu-jitsu. And so without further ado, let's hear from Andrew Smith. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your background. Um, you know, you train, in, in addition to jiu-jitsu, you're secondary black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you have a black belt in judo, and you also train Muay Thai, and I, I, I'm also cu- I'm curious, why do you train martial arts? What got you started? Um, well, you know, honestly, I was, uh, let me, there's kind of two ways to answer that. The first one, I started uh, karate when I was a kid um, for about a month and a half. It was during summer school, and I couldn't convince my parents to uh, bring me to another karate school during the year, so... That's why I started martial arts is because I wanted to basically be Daniel LaRusso, um, like most kids probably of our generation. Um, 
But uh, wrestling in high school, just because I kind of liked, uh, I don't know, the idea of like rough sport, like the idea of tackling people and stuff like that. And, um, and I don't know why, probably puberty got me into it as much as anything else. Um, but I started doing um, wrestling in high school and, it, you know, it hooked me. It got it took a couple of years, but I really got into it. I really enjoyed it. And uh, finally, by the time I got halfway decent my senior year, um, it was time to stop. You know, I, I graduated. I tried doing a little freestyle wrestling after high school and then um, nothing. So I was looking for something that would replace that. And uh, the college that I went to in South Carolina um, didn't have uh, a wrestling team, didn't have, a, um, as far as I could tell, a club or anything at the time. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll put that on hold for a couple of years. And I did. And then I moved to Richmond and I got back into uh, judo at uh, the VCU Judo Club in uh, 1997 in January. And uh, um, <clears throat> similar to with wrestling, I was just hooked. I mean, I was like into it. I wanted the, the challenge of the physicality and, and also the, the cool techniques. And not to mention, you know, you could choke people and stuff like that. And that's when I really started getting into stuff like the UFC. I started watching other martial arts. Um, and, uh, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu was right around the corner, right on the heels of it. So I was in love with the ground game immediately. A lot of people got into judo, I guess, because they like the throws. But I got into it because I liked what was going on on the ground more than anything else. You know? And as a consequence, I learned the throws, too. Mm-hmm. So um, that's sort of my story, I guess. So do you, do, you, do you get different things out of each martial art you've trained? And if you could identify like what you get distinctively out of each, what would you say? Sure. Well, um, you know, I only did Muay Thai for about four years. Um, you know, my, I felt like it was really necessary for me to train Muay Thai because my gym, uh, added a Muay Thai program. Um, it's been a long time now, about eight years or so. Um, you know, and I was there for every class in the beginning and I really wanted to just get decent at it. Um, it was sort of like a labor of love in the sense that I, I felt like it was going to make me more complete as a martial artist, having a decent striking background, and, uh, you know, and, and I really, I like the clinch a lot of Muay Thai, um, because I already had the judo background, I had the wrestling background and everything. So being in close to people, you know, made a lot of sense. And I was like, oh, you can trip people. That's sort of cool. I like that, you know, uh, oh, this guy's punching me in the face. I don't like that. I'm going to go trip him instead, you know? And, um, <clears throat> but I started getting pretty good at the, um, the punching and kicking, or at least not, not necessarily pretty good, but a lot better than I used to be at it. And I started kind of enjoying that. Um, but I never enjoyed it the same way I enjoyed grappling. So with, with jiu-jitsu and with, uh, with judo as well, I really like the idea that somebody could be pushing me and I could just sort of lazily get out of the way, you know. And I think the, be- the thing that best uh, exemplifies this is if you watch o- old videos of, like, Mathune, the judo, um, they called him the empty gi in judo, like uh, standing around and guys are trying to work really, really hard to throw him and he's sort of like floating and, and uh, you know, it looks like it's effortless the way he sort of counters them and throws them to the ground and stuff. And to me, that's that's the essence of judo, and it's also the essence of Brazilian jiu-jitsu on the ground. You know, you watch guys that are that are just super proficient in jiu-jitsu, and they're not breaking a sweat, and everybody else is sort of working really, really hard to try to get things done. And the, the person that's, that's proficient in the art isn't really doing very much at all. So I was like, I've always sort of admired the, the ability to be um, sort of lazy to get things done. And I think that's um, the, the philosophy of martial arts that you can take away from jiu-jitsu and judo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that sounds really lofty, but I think that's when you when you train here on the mats. A lot of martial arts will um, sort of make you say a creed at the beginning of class or something. You, you know, you chant something or you say a recitation or something to remind you of what the art is. But when you do jujitsu, um, you know what it is when you train on the mats. You understand that if something more powerful than you is coming at you, you have to get out of the way. You have to redirect it. 
if uh, you know you can't you can't go go full on against things that are going to overpower you, and that's true in life. I mean, uh, <laughs> you can uh, you can try to fight the system head on, or you can be you know sneaky and subvert it the way some of the the governments have been toppled recently, for example, or um, you know. Uh, if a problem presents itself to you in life, you know, instead of fighting it tooth and nail, um, stepping out of the way and, and letting it either letting it happen and figuring out how to deal with it or somehow redirecting it and using it as a positive way, positive thing is, is really good. Uh, on the other hand, you have to learn um, tenacity and toughness from <laughs> all of the martial arts that I mentioned, you know, like you, you're going to be life isn't necessarily super easy either. And you have to you have to fight. So I think that's the interesting paradox to me of all the martial arts that I've trained is that, you know, you, you're ultimately looking for this efficiency, but at the same time, you're um, striving to be uh, tenacious and tough and not ever give up. So since you've been around. So that was uh, our first segment with Andrew Smith. And I think that last bit is a pretty significant thing to uh, to keep in mind that, you know, the martial arts are like life. It's not easy. You know, sometimes you're going to want to quit, but uh, there's a big difference between wanting to and doing it. And uh, one of the cool things that I've learned from jujitsu is that if there's an obstacle in your path and you can't move it, there are other ways around the solution. And so it was cool to hear Andrew talk about that a little bit. We're going to get into our second segment with Andrew in just a sec. We're going to play a little bumper. And then on the other side, we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to have our longest segment with Andrew, about a 15 minute segment. And I think this will be an interesting one for you, this next segment, because if you're interested in what competition was like in North Carolina and Virginia 15 years ago, then Andrew has some really interesting information and some cool stories about that. If you were around for some of that time, then maybe this will be a stroll down memory lane for you. And if you weren't around during that time, like me, then I think it'll be really revelatory about how good we have it these days. So we're going to play a little bumper. And then on the other side, the next portion of our segment with or our interview with Andrew Smith. Jiu-Jitsu is part of the solution. Jiu-Jitsu saves lives. It's the Cage Side Concussion Cast on WHUPFN.org. So since you've been around the martial arts scene in Virginia and North Carolina, what are the main changes that you've seen uh, over the years? Man, it's been awesome. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't really <clears throat> remember or understand that when you... Uh, Competition is, is a really big one. You wanted to compete uh, 15 years ago in either Virginia or North Carolina. You could either um, wait a year and then probably drive three or four hours and compete, depending on where you lived, or you could compete uh, every month or so, or every, I guess every month is about the max for a little while, or every two or three weeks, and you could drive eight, ten hours and, and compete to the at these places, or fly. You know, if you had a lot of money, you could fly. I didn't have a lot of money for this. so for me it meant a lot of road road trips, a lot of driving when I wanted to compete, and uh, and so that's what I did for a long time. And I mean, <clears throat> there's something to be said for driving really far, and when you get there, you really appreciate a tournament, no matter how badly it's run, and no matter how many people show up. I mean, you you obviously want a lot of people to show up, but you know, we drive uh, li like literally eight or eight or nine hours and go to a place and have fifty or sixty competitors show up. You might have two or three matches and. And that was a great day. You know, that was awesome. It was totally worth it. So that's one thing is that the um, competition is a lot more accessible now, and especially in Virginia and North Carolina. Um, and I think everywhere across the country, maybe um, Southern California might be the exception. They probably had the more tournaments earlier. But even still, like, it's it's a lot more frequent out there. 
Um, <clears throat> and the, the second thing is, is the quality. I mean, you know, like driving around when I was, when I was, when I first started doing, uh, seminars, I wanted to raise money for a trip to Brazil that I was taking. And I did basically judo for Brazilian jiu-jitsu was the way that I sort of gimmick, like, gimmick myself, you know, marketed myself. And, um, I didn't feel super comfortable just doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu seminars because I was a purple belt at the time and I was a black belt in judo, but, um, but the judo for BJJ kind of thing, you know, it sort of made sense because that's where I excelled in competition. That's sort of how I eked by some of my, um, you know, competitive wins and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, over the years, it, it was okay for me back then to, to train, to, to teach uh, a martial art, to teach Brazilian jiu-jitsu in a place that was sort of isolated because Purple Belt was a big deal, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, and now Purple Belt is sort of like the new white belt with two stripes, you know. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean necessarily what it used to mean. It doesn't carry the same weight that it used to carry. Even Black Belt doesn't carry the same weight that it used to carry. Like where I'm from in Richmond, I mean, there's probably like 14 or 15 black belts now there's eight of them at my gym you know um and i mean that's astounding to me because i would go to these places where there weren't black belts in the city there weren't black belts uh in some instances for uh almost the whole state you know depending on which states i went to i went to some pretty obscure locations you know so um back then it was it was definitely different so the quality not only the the number of people who are ranked in brazilian jiu-jitsu but i mean these people have been training for like 20 years now 15 years these people really know what they're doing, you know, and I've been able to watch a lot of friends of mine who sort of were in the same boat that I was in, sort of um, big fish, small pond. We thought we were pretty good. And then uh, we saw what was out there. And now we realized, you know, we didn't really know anything back then. And maybe we don't even know anything still, you know. So the perspective of time sort of gives you that um, where you can you can sort of tell that you don't really uh, know as much as you think, you know, maybe. But I've seen I've been able to really see a lot of that change. And uh, and, and now there are tons of schools in each area. You know, I'm here right now in uh, Wake Forest, basically the Raleigh, greater Raleigh area. I mean, there's probably a dozen schools in this area now. Um, if you go back in time to when I first started tra traveling and training and stuff like that and competing, I mean, there might have been one or two, you know, I mean, literally. Um, so that, that's been a, the explosive uh, growth of the, of the art has been the, the biggest change. And as a result, people are just better. People just understand it better. And you've been a part of that growth, you know, talking about competition, you know, you're one of the co-owners of U.S. Grappling, which is, you know, it runs tournaments all over and, does, you know, have the best run tournaments that I've participated in and I've competed quite a bit. Like, let's talk about U.S. Grappling a little bit. Um, you were one of the, is it fair to say you were one of the first to really popularize submission only? Would you say that's fair as a format? Um, yeah, I think, it, I think it's okay to say that. Um, you know, U.S. Grappling started doing submission only tournaments and we'll, I should clarify, when I say submission only, I mean actually submission only. The only way that you can win is by submission. There's no overtime with points. There's no um, rest decision or something like that. Both people don't lose if it goes more than 20 or 25 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour or whatever. It's just people grapple until there's a submission. And in that sense, there, there weren't tournaments like that, certainly not on the East Coast. Um, a little over 10 years ago, it, James Spate ran a tournament that was uh, – submission only but it had a 25 minute time limit and then there were some funky rules in overtime and stuff like that and i give james a lot of credit for running that event back then because that took a lot of guts um you know but what we did was was even taking it a step further and sort of saying well this is the real deal and um yeah really there wasn't anybody else doing it at all and uh there are very there are very few people that are doing it at all now and certainly nobody's doing it on the scale that we're doing it on um i mean with hundreds of participants and multiple times per year in several different cities 
Um, so I, I would say that U.S. grappling has gone a long way to popularize submission only um, in that sense. And I wish other people would sort of pick it up and say this is a great concept because it's for, for my money, there's no better tournament experience than submission only. I've had the most fun competing in those tournaments. There's the least amount of stress that you're going to get. Um, the camaraderie is even better than it is at a normal tournament. Because, I mean, you know, let's face it, when you compete, it can be kind of a nerve-wracking experience. You know, you go out there and it's, you know, um, you might get hurt or you might get, you know, uh, you're worried about what people are going to think when you perform out there. The last thing you need is to worry about technicalities and uh, specific rules and stuff like that, you know. And on the flip side, U.S. Grappling takes the, the technicalities really seriously with our rules, you know, like our referees. Like, like you said, you've experienced U.S. Grappling quite a bit, and um, you've been a part of, of helping us out too recently, which is awesome. Um, but we, we carefully groom people to become referees at our events. We train people. You know, we have a certification process, and then we have an internship process and so on, and people have to go through certain steps before they become referees. Don't really see that out there too much either. Um, so if you're running a points event, you, you really need to have that, um, <clears throat> that quality control uh, for that. And submission only we take seriously too because uh, just because you don't, you know, if the referee knows the points doesn't necessarily mean they know certain things like boundaries and things like that. Um, so that, that's pretty much it. I don't want to run along too much about you know, talking about organization, but I mean, to answer, I think we are working to popularize submission only. We were the first that I know of to run it on this scale. Mm -hmm. um, there have been maybe one-off tournaments that have been in isolated areas where they've done it before, but certainly not um, ongoing. We've run over 30 of them now, and I mean, there's no plans really to slow down with the submission only concept. Uh, if anything, we'd like to speed up a little bit. If the market will sustain it, we'll go ahead and do more of them. If not, then we'll have to do points one time in, in, in a city and then submission only for the other time. You mentioned rule sets for competition in U.S. grappling, taking rules seriously as well as ref certification processes. One of the, one of the common questions we got and some one of the things that people brought up on Reddit that we wanted to ask you about is the sort of the rules changes in judo in competition judo and with IBJJF where you see more restrictive more restrictions being placed on the use of certain techniques. And I was wondering what you think about that generally, and how do you strike a balance between protecting the competitor, making sure the competitor has a good experience, but also not, you know, overly overly restricting what a competitor can do. That, that pretty much hits it on the head. I mean, you have to protect the competitors. So everybody sort of jumps on the leg reap rule. And, and at first I was like, oh, I hate this rule. It's so stupid. You can't, you know, <laughs> nobody's knee is going to explode just because the leg is reaped and stuff like that. Um, except for one time I did actually make a guy's leg explode by reaping his knee in a tournament. And I mean, that <laughs> I, really, I probably shouldn't be laughing about this, but it's been a really long time. And I, I caught the guy in a heel hook. It was over under position, my favorite leg finishing position. And the guy just tried to rip his leg free because he didn't know any better. And his leg popped several times really loudly. And that guy left on a stretcher. And uh, since then, I don't, you know, I haven't necessarily shied away from the position. In fact, I wanted to um, sort of educate others as to what the danger of the position was, which is part of the reason why I like doing leg lock seminars so much. Um, but, you know, in a, in a sense, you have to also um, understand the reality of the situation. You know, not a lot of gyms understand the leg reap and what it means, you know, what over-under position means, what the, what the difference is in between um, certain leg attacking positions, why some are safe and why some are not. And with, uh, you know, with U.S. grappling in particular, we've tried to educate our refs as to these very specific scenarios, you know, in the referee certification clinic, for example, and having many ref meetings before the tournaments and things like that help out with it. But um, in, in some regards, it's really important for safety. 
Um, in other regards, it becomes ridiculous. Like with sport judo, um, not being able to grab legs is a silly rule. It's not for the safety, it's for excitement. I think when, um, when rule sets dictate or cater, when rule sets cater to um, trying to make the sport more exciting, which is sort of an artificial notion, that's when you run into problems. Um, it becomes a complete bastardization of what the martial art initially represented. Uh, when you, you know, not to pick on judo too much, but I mean, you can't hold the collar on the same side for more than five seconds with both hands because it's considered stalling. Um, you can't, you can't lift up the person by the legs anymore. You can't grab the pants. Um, there's certain other grips that are illegal. I mean, all of these things are just catered towards, let, we want judo to look a certain way. Uh, we want Iponse Anagi every time, or we want Uchimata every time, or whatever, you know? But rather than dealing with the other techniques, uh, which are not any more dangerous than the, the dynamic throws that they want to see, um, they're saying, let's ban that to make the sport more exciting. So I think when it, when it becomes, the, the aim of it is to make it a spectator-friendly sort of thing, that is exactly when you run into problems. When you make it just for competitors, that's, that's, that's really... Um, you can't go wrong if you cater to the competitors, in my view. Um, Jiu-Jitsu isn't a, isn't a spectator sport, in my view, either. It's a, it's a competitor sport. When we founded U.S. Grappling, we wanted a tournament. We wanted to provide a tournament for people to compete, not a tournament for people to come and watch. And uh, maybe that explains a large difference in what we're trying to do versus what a lot of other organizations are trying to do. They're trying to get something that they can package and sell to people to watch and we're just trying to give uh, competitors a place to come and compete. And that's so part of the reason why we don't charge a spectator fee. I mean, first of all, most of the people that come with you to a tournament are not your fans. They're your, your family or, you know, friends who are maybe checking out the art or whatever. Um, maybe potential future competitors for us, too. You know, people are going to come and compete at our events. So I think when, back to the question at hand, you know, if you, if you make it... Uh, if it's good for the competitors, then go for it with the rule set. If it's catered towards spectators or anybody else besides the competitors, then that's that's the question you have to ask when you're making rules, and that's that's all you have to ask ever. Mm -hmm. Is this good for the competitors? That seems like a good point to talk about some technique. You mentioned leg locks, and we just got done with a seminar where you taught some leg locks. How did you get started with leg locks? What attracted you about those positions, and what, what made that sort of a focus of yours? Well, part of what attracted me to him was that uh, I felt I was pretty lazy in the, in the grand scheme of things, and I felt like I could cheat and become good at something and, uh, you know, maybe win some matches without having to know how to pass the guard or whatever. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> passing the guard was really hard. Uh, when I first started uh, training in Richmond, there wasn't really a great jiu-jitsu gym, uh, you know, for me to train at. Uh, fortunately, Eric Berto moved to Richmond in uh, around 2000, uh, opened up his own gym January of 2002. I was there for the first class. And, uh, you know, ever since then, I've uh, trained with Eric. I've, I'm on Eric's team. He's my instructor. We're friends. Um, you know, he's introduced me to Julio Fernandez since, who's been uh, a great influence for us and everything. Um, and so before that, it was sort of like the Wild West for me. You know, I would travel around to various gyms, and I would learn what I could learn. Um, and I also watched a ton of videos, and I read magazines, and I got techniques that way from wherever I, wherever I could, and, uh, and asked people questions and stuff like that. Um, 
messing around with leg locks way before I should have been probably, um, before I learned any sort of fundamental stuff. I was learning how to do more advanced setups. I was learning how to do more advanced setups for jujitsu stuff too. You know, I learned how to do probably a daily heave guard from the bottom before I learned how to do um, posture from the close guard on top, you know, or how to properly escape side control or, you know, whatever. And I didn't recognize it. I didn't understand, I mean, uh, that I should have been learning all this other stuff because I didn't, I just didn't know any better. Um, the judo club that I was at had pretty good groundwork. And when I'd go around and travel and train at other gyms and stuff, I'd pick up some pretty good details here and there, depending on where I went. Um, but there just wasn't the structure that I really needed back then. So leg locks really appealed to me. And uh, they continued to appeal to me over the years because I sort of think leg locks are 50% of the joints that you can attack, you know. And so it just makes sense that you should spend about half of your time getting good with them. Um, it continues to be uh, an advantage to understand leg locks. You know, if you understand leg locks and you're a black belt and you're competing against somebody who's also a black belt, who's maybe equally skilled in all other areas, but you understand leg locks and they don't, the odds of you winning that match are pretty solid, you know, and um, not just about winning a match, but, I mean, rolling at the gym, too. I mean, I might compete a couple times a year nowadays. I'm not going to compete often, but um, I'm going to train at, at my gym with my students every day, and I want them to understand the game, too. So it really is like half of the game. If you're, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're not really into jiu-jitsu, I'm, I'm a little bit creeped out, honestly. It's the Cage Side Concussion Cast on whupfm.org. So that was uh, our second segment with Andrew Smith, where we talked a little bit about U.S. grappling, and we uh, we talked about the tournaments and sort of their philosophy about it, in addition to the popularization of the submission-only format, also about the sort of art-for-art's sake approach, the competitor competition for competitors' sake. And I thought that was pretty interesting, in addition to the historical aspects of, like, you, st- you, you, know, you used to have to drive for hours to maybe get a match or two. And so it really, for me, throws in stark relief just how, how, how lucky we have it and how these days, how lucky guys like me that started training about five years ago have it. And so I hope that that threw that some perspective for you as well. We do have a final segment with Andrew, and I think you'll be glad you stuck around for it. It's going to be of particular relevance to those of you who train, not just Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but other martial arts as well. Um, I asked Andrew about some of the most common training mistakes that he sees people making, particularly those that have achieved a certain level of proficiency, and I think the answers might well surprise you. Uh, So I think you'll be glad that you stuck around for our last segment with Andrew Smith, and here it is. Next 10 years, and it's not... I don't just mean... Um, what are some common mistakes you see people make in training after they achieve a certain level of proficiency? Like, what kind of holes in people's training that, would you say, like, the average person who just got their blue belt or someone that maybe understands some fundamentals, what are, what are the most common things that those folks are missing in their training? That's, that's a good question. Um, you know, honestly, um, this is the thing that I would probably uh, do if I could go back in time and teach myself, <clears throat> you know, go back and hit myself over the head with a newspaper or something. But... Um, I think people should uh, really start out with the big picture in mind. Start with, don't think in terms of what you want to accomplish over the next, uh, you know, month or six weeks or whatever. Think about what you want to accomplish in terms of the next 10 years. And it's not, I don't just mean um, uh, techniques, you know, like, okay, you have to have good posture in the guard. You have to be able to open up the closed guard. You have to be able, you have to have takedowns. You have to do 
this and that. I mean, you want to be doing this stuff for a long time. You want to do jujitsu for the rest of your life, right? If you're really into this stuff, and I think you know most of the people listening to this are probably going to be really into jujitsu. You know, otherwise, why would they bother listening to this, right? Um, if you're if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're not really into jujitsu, I'm I'm a little bit creeped out, honestly. But uh, <laughs> if if you're really into jujitsu, you want to do it for a long time. You need to take care of yourself, and you need to learn how to take care of your partners. And a big part of that means um, not using tons of energy when you're rolling, not constantly um, forcing your body to do things that it doesn't really want to do, um, understanding your, your own limitations physically, um, not trying to be faster than your partner, not trying to be uh, stronger than your partner necessarily. Um, you know, explosiveness, people talk about, like, how much, how important is explosiveness in jiu-jitsu? I think it's it's about as unimportant as it could possibly be. I think it's the opposite of what you should be doing in jujitsu for the most part. And there's plenty of black belts that disagree with me on that, but um, I'm going to be doing this when I'm 75, and maybe they're not. So <laughs> maybe they will. I don't know. I could be wrong. And you know, um, Maybe they'll have some really good bomba by the time I'm 75, and I'll start using it. But I'm thinking in terms of doing stuff for a long time, and going back to the uh, the philosophy of jujitsu, what it really represents, you know, this is the gentle art, meaning... It's not meaning that it's we're going to um, cuddle with each other or whatever. I mean, we, we sort of do, but, you know, means that when force comes at you, you need to get out of the way of the force. It doesn't mean you have to become stronger and tougher. Those things are byproducts, and they're nice byproducts of training, but they're not the objective. They're not the main objective. The main objective is understanding. So what people should really seek is, is not necessarily becoming better. It's understanding. It's a, an overall understanding of the objectives of the game. Uh, to become able to flow more over time, to become, you know, able to use a lot less energy and to be able to risk a lot less of, of your life, you know, your, your bones, your joints, all these things, these injuries that are always going to occur with jiu-jitsu, understanding how to not get hurt when you're training. So, and being as a consequence, you'll also be able to take care of your partners a little better because you'll understand what they need, hopefully, theoretically. So we, we put out some questions on Reddit and uh, Twitter and Instagram, and one common one that I think is a good way to end on, I don't know the answer to this, people were asking me, well, why are you Goat Fury? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's a long story, but it's not a very good one. Um, but I can tell it. Uh, so years and years ago, my friends and I used to play Dungeons & Dragons, and, uh, you know, like a surprisingly large number of people who do jiu-jitsu now, I guess. Um, and we were, as a consequence, interested in all kinds of goofy references and uh, uh, sort of in interested in uh, occult references at the time, things that were funny. And one of the things that struck us as absolutely hilarious was the idea that the goat was somehow an occult animal. And it was like this, uh, this icon of evil in some way. Because if you look at a goat, they look pretty funny. I mean, they're pretty goofy looking, you know, um, ridiculous. So... Um, uh, so, so that was part of it. We, we used to joke about like goat cheese having magical powers and all these other kinds of things. And whenever we saw a goat, we'd get really excited and everything. So, I mean, we were really nerdy kids who were playing D&D. And that's what really nerdy kids did was make really obscure jokes that only, only they got. Um, so years later, uh, a friend of mine had a, an email address that was uh, uh, based on him being a volunteer fireman. And it was firefury at something. 
And I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes that's pretty funny. And just to make fun of him, I'm going to make my email address Goat Fury at something. And it stuck. You know, I just was like, that is a pretty funny combination of words. Uh, so I joined a forum, you know, I think it was the uh, mixedmartialarts.com forum before it was mixedmartialarts.com, whatever it was in the 90s. And, um, and, and then I joined another forum and it just, it just nailed to me. I couldn't get rid of it after that. Um, and so the goat thing stuck and I became uh, Judo Goat when Goat Fury wasn't available in a couple of places. Like one of my email addresses was Judo Goat at. And uh, one of my usernames ended up being Judo Goat, I think, on Reddit. And for a while, it was on MMA.TV as well, the underground forum. Uh, just because Goat Fury was already taken. Um, probably because I took it a long time ago and then forgot my password or something. And instead of uh, reaching out to the admins, I was like, uh, I'll just start a new new account. You know? So it's a not a good story, but that's it. That's pretty much it. I always like to end on not a good story. <laughs> I do like to end on not a good story. And I want to thank Andrew Smith for that interview where he had a number of different insights, including be really careful of which online nicknames you pick because it might just stick with you for 15 or 20 years. Uh, but seriously, thanks, Andrew, for that interview. I want to encourage everyone out there who does jujitsu to seminars when he comes through. And when you're in Richmond, go train at Revolution BJJ, which uh, I do when I'm in town. Hopefully I will be again soon. Oh, so once uh, again, thanks so much to Andrew Smith. Thanks to U.S. Grappling. Uh, it's been a, a fun show, and we have a few minutes left for our annual, or for our, our, our traditional ending segment. And once we get to the other side of this bumper, it will be time for that segment, which we call the parting shot. I've always sort of admired the the ability to be um, sort of lazy to get things done, and I think that's um, the the philosophy of martial arts that you can take away from jiu-jitsu and judo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, usually I have a co-host, Trevor Hayes, and usually we go in tandem on these parting shots. In the parting shot, we bring you our favorite offbeat tidbits about the martial arts experience. Sometimes this is directly related to choking and being choked, punching and being punched, kicking and being kicked. Sometimes it goes a little further afield than the local martial arts experience, and today we're going a little far afield. My parting shot is, though, in the vein of a famous jiu-jitsu challenge match between Lance Batchelor, the 250-pound bodybuilder who uh, challenged 150-pound jiu-jitsu legend Pedro Sauer in a no-rules fight. So for a long time, people thought that strength would get you everywhere. Martial arts folks knew better, and there's no better representation of this than the Sauer-Batchelor fight, which you can still see on YouTube as a small man in a gi quickly dispatches a man of Herculean brute strength. So we knew even then that being a strong man wasn't everything. But that doesn't, doesn't mean it wasn't fun to watch people lifting heavy things. And many people of my vintage, and hopefully you're among them, grew up watching the World's Strongest Man competitions on basic cable. If you haven't seen them, you missed out, and I'm sure you can find them on the internet somewhere, as you can find everything where fine internets are sold. If you haven't seen them, I'll describe them. These late-night affairs featured muscle-bound, mostly Scandinavian, roided-out guys to, roided out to the gills guys that were flipping tires and lifting rocks. Now, because some genius put a bunch of sound files from the show on the internet, and for my stroll in Amnesia Lane, I clicked on a bunch of them. Uh, we'll post that page on Facebook if you're interested in some of the sounds that I'm going to play. But the upshot is, if you grew up watching this stuff, you grew up watching guys with names like Magnus of Magnuson or Svig uh, Manfred lifting tires, uh, you know, hitting things with hammers, and generally looking around 
uh, walking around looking totally non-functional, but lifting things that normal humans should not be able to lift. So whether you grew up watching this stuff or didn't, I hope you will appreciate and enjoy such clips as this one, where one of the competitors uh, explains the problem with lifting things over, the, over a long period of time. This is the only problem with lifting things over a long period of time. The only problem is the lactic acid buildup, my huge muscles. The only problem is the lactic acid buildup in my huge muscles. I say this every time I lose a jiu-jitsu match, or at least I'm going to start. So I think all of us who do competitive martial arts could learn from unintentional comedy in promos like that and in promos like this one, where a guy promises, well, it's probably best if, if, if you just listen to this, for what this guy promises to do in the latter phases of the competition. Come on, Internet. I think you will see me switch on the crazy switch later on in the competition. Another thing that you could promise to do, switch on the crazy switch later on in the petition. So if you've ever heard me and Trevor uh, talk about uh, talk on the show right before a comp or when we interviewed C.J. Murdoch, you will know, and or if you've ever cut weight, you already know, that martial arts and apparently strongmen think about food an awful lot. And so when you watch Scandinavian pick up a car with his bare hands, well, you too might say something like this. I don't know what the Mike Slammers be eating, but I need to go in here and try some of it, you know what I'm saying? I have it under good authority that the Icelandic diet is not vegan, and it's mostly fish and fermented shark, uh, which I'm sure has its own appeal. But, uh, you know, when you watch an Icelander pick up a car with his bare hands, you too might be impressed like that. So for the final part of the parting shot, if you, you know, a lot of times, out of the mouths of babes or giant roided-out Scandinavians come words to live by. And I think if you really want some words to live by, you should try this one on for size. If it comes to power, and to grip, and to pick up heavy stuff, I will be there. When we eventually get around to making the Cage Side Concussion Cast t-shirts, when it comes to power, when it comes to grip, when it comes to picking up heavy things, I will be there. This phrase probably will not be on those t-shirts, but I can't promise anything. So if you thought those were funny, there are dozens more sound files on this website. Check out our Facebook page for more. I'm going to post that on up there, and hopefully you guys find that as entertaining as I did. So uh, I'm going to get on out of here. I'm going to let Tune in the Real Law play us out in a minute. But first of all, I want to thank a bunch of people. I want to thank Andrew Smith for uh, giving me that interview and for being patient while we fixed the audio and played it. I want to thank everybody at U.S. Grappling for putting on an awesome tournament yesterday. I had a great time refing. I want to thank Holly Holm for making the mixed martial arts world a whole lot more interesting and hopefully for helping women's MMA vault to the popularity that it richly deserves. And finally, I want to thank you, the listener. I am Jeff Shaw. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast. Thanks so much for listening to us. We're here every Sunday, 10 to 11, and if you miss us, you can download us on whoopfm.org. Thank you so much, and here's Tune in the Real Law.
104.7 FM, WHUP LP Hillsboro.